Hey, welcome to this episode of Light 'em Up. We take a deep dive on the criminal justice system, crime scene investigation, and leadership. We enlighten, educate, and empower others with the truth. Like it or not, the truth disturbs, the truth divides, but ultimately, the truth delivers. Hey, I'm your host, Phil Rizzo. I'm the principal owner of Rizzo's Protective Group. We are a high-risk security consulting firm headquartered out of Akron, Ohio, and with offices in the Bronx, New York, and Cerro Alto, the Dominican Republic. Hey, as we put the ball on the tee to line things up for kickoff, we speak life, health, and prosperity over each and every one of you, and we want to thank you for joining us. Tonight, on this explosive episode of Light 'em Up, we shine the light of the truth on the cancerous face of anti-Semitism, hatred towards all things Jewish that has permeated our society and the world. Anti-Semitism is a global problem today. Hatred of Jews based on religious, political, or racial ideologies continues among ordinary citizens, people of influence, and even under state sponsorship. There has been an outsized increase in the number of hate crimes perpetrated against members of the Jewish community across the United States. According to the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, there were more than 2,024 anti-Semitic incidents in 2020, the third highest year on record. Recent incidents have ranged from being taken hostage in their own synagogue to attacks at Jewish community centers, kosher markets, and on the streets in Brooklyn, New York, just to name a few. People who want to study the Torah have had to learn tactical techniques to help preserve their lives and mitigate the risk of being victimized. Jews are the minority most often targeted for hate crimes, according to the FBI. Jews make up less than 2% of the U.S. population, yet 60% of the faith-oriented hate crimes target Jews across the country. Although anti-Semitism predates the advent of the Internet, the Internet is a hotbed filled with the sewage of anti-Semitism. We hear vile anti-Semitic rhetoric from members of Congress, such as the Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, who testified that she could not have played a part in the January 6, 2021 insurrection because she had been, quote, abducted by a Jewish spaceship earlier that day. She stated, I was walking down the street minding my own business when suddenly a Jewish teleporting beam levitated me into the hall of the orbiter, she said. You can't make this stuff up. Once abducted, she testified, she found herself in the presence of the Rothschild banking family, all dressed in silver spacesuits. This is the type of individual, supported by her constituency, that are elected and sent to Washington, D.C. It is a travesty of justice that people like this are allowed to walk the halls of Congress. We'll interrogate and investigate prejudices, like we just mentioned, that arise from conscious and unconscious biases. Jews feel besieged and under attack. In America and abroad, being Jewish means having to be afraid. Our nation has struggled to attempt to curb such hatred and vitriol through education, the publication of research, legislation, and the pursuit of criminal punishment for those who violate the law. We'll touch upon the historical forces, the role of religious ideation, and the even greater importance of individual fears, hostilities, and insecurities 
on the part of the anti-Semite. Anti-Semitism is not a Jewish illness, but a non-Jew one. It is a cancer that kills and destroys nations, societies, and countries. Simply look at the self-inflicted destruction anti-Semitism brought upon German society and how it continues to rear its ugly head today in Germany and all across Europe. Violent anti-Semitism and hatred did not begin with the Holocaust. Violent anti-Semitism and hatred did not end with the Holocaust. And as we mentioned, it's on the rise. Taking the witness stand is our very special guest, Mr. Alan Fortnoff. Allen is a graduate from a local Akron high school and attended both Ohio State and Akron University, where he studied business administration. He spent most of his life in the hospitality industry and sales. He was fortunate to be able to retire at age 55. After his retirement, he started a consulting and motivational company called Motivation Motivates. In his personal life, he has been married to his wife, Jan, for 44 years and has two sons. His older son is married and has blessed Alan with a grandson. He's been a resident of Akron for the majority of his life. While retired, Alan has spent most of his time involved in social justice. He is past president of the Akron Interfaith Caregivers and the Akron Interfaith Council. Allen is a founding member of the Akron Interfaith Immigration Advocates and the Akron Interfaith Social Justice Group. As you can tell, he feels that it is the responsibility of all of our faith to solve problems with peace and in a humanitarian fashion. Allen has recently returned to the work world as a chef in the catering world, which has been a bucket list dream of his for many years. He looks forward to many more years of service and playtime with his grandson and family. Alan is a friend of mine and a very devout man of the Jewish faith. When you are fortunate to be in his presence, he exudes a warm sense of humor and a sense of peace like very few people that I've had the pleasure of meeting. Alan always seems to have a smile on his face. I met Alan at an Akron Area Interfaith Council meeting. As I recall, the room was very, very crowded for that particular meeting, and I was fortunate to sit right next to him. He actually made room for me at the table. He helped me to feel very, very welcomed. During and after the meeting, we talked, laughed, and became friends from that point forward. He invited me to a Summit County Emergency Management meeting, and our friendship was bolstered even further. He came to mind first and foremost when our production team envisioned developing this episode on anti-Semitism, because we all know that Alan's knowledge base on all things of peace and all things Judaism, well, let's just say he knows his stuff, and then some. Alan is a Rolodex with legs. Everyone knows him and he knows everyone and to know Alan is to love him. Like we said, he recently became a grandfather, so we wanted to congratulate him on that enormous blessing and extend our warmest welcome to him to the big show. Alan, welcome aboard. Welcome to Light Him Up. Well, I, I'm delighted that you've invited me, and this is a subject that uh, I think uh, we'll both learn from. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Let's dive right in. Alan, for starters, from your lifelong walk with God, your faith, your work in the past with the Akron Area Interfaith Council, all of your collective and combined life experiences, can you define for our listeners what is anti-Semitism? 
anti-Semitism? Yeah, you know, I, I, I did take the time to, to look it up in a dictionary. I, I might say that uh, the information I'm offering is, is obviously mine and, and no one else's. You know, I looked it up in the, in the dictionary, and it says this, it's a discrimination against or prejudice or hostility towards Jews. So that, you know, that's pretty wide open. And I think that's part of the problem in defining um, anti-Semitism is that, you know, those words can cover a lot of different things. Um, But over the years, it's mostly been a discrimination. We have not had a lot of, well, uh, uh, other than World War II, most of it has been, you know, discriminatory or being prejudiced towards. The hostility has come in, in, in small amounts through through 5,000 years of history. But I, I think most of it is more discriminatory uh, towards us than it has been any, you know, uh, other, like I said, other than World War II, you know, where we, we lost, it was definitely hostile. Other than that, I think it's mo- mostly today, in today's world, I think we can really talk about it as being, you know, prejudiced against us. Sure, I see. Throughout time and history, why do you think, why do you feel that Jews have been targeted as they have been. Well, I think uh, if if you go back and you, you know ancient times, the Jews were different from anyone else. So idolatry was obviously the number one way of people of faith back in, in, in you know ancient days. And the Jews did not believe in idolatry; they believed in one God. And I think that made them different. And so they became you know the the people with with different thoughts. I think that there was a lot of of self-learning back then. Um, obviously, there weren't really schools, and you know, there was no writings to speak of. You know, not a lot of books to learn from. But I think that there was a lot of teaching between each other, and so it, it made us different than other people. And so, over the years, we became the people that were discriminated against, whether it be the Romans, the Greeks, you know, and and as we you know know now, other people in the area of Israel have followed through on discrimination and hostility. I think it's just a matter of sometimes we don't like to admit, but we don't like different. Yeah, yeah, I see exactly what you mean. Different isn't bad, it's just different. And that's not that's not a bad thing, but a lot of people can't see that as it is. Yeah. They, they have a difficulty. How have Jews been affected by this anti-Semitism? Well, I think that, I mean, in today's, in today's society, I think that we force ourselves to live in, in, in self, I'll call it a self-imposed ghetto. So if you have a town that has, you know, where the Jews, there's a good portion of Jews, you'll usually find that your Jews stick together. That doesn't mean that they're on one street, but they're in one neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You know, I live in Akron, Ohio, and uh, you could say, you know, you could see over the years where the Jews have moved from west, you know, close by West Akron, meaning close by downtown and then slowly move to different areas of the city moving further west. Right now, you have a, a large majority of Jews moving out to the to the suburbs, meaning Fairlawn and Bath and, and even in Copley. So everyone has moved a little further west, but we're all still in a, in a, a circle. If you, if you look at a map, we're all in this little circle. And uh, so it's self-imposed, adverse to back in maybe uh, the early 1900s, where it was a little bit more implied 
specific ghetto, where if you were in New York City, you lived in a specific neighborhood. And, and it was very densely populated, just like the Italians and the Irish. And so there was different communities of people. And again, it was self-imposed, but I think it was because we were, we were all immigrants of the country. We wanted to stay by people we knew. So it was self-imposed, but I think that that's what you'll see as the main crux of anti-Semitism, you know, in general over the last 150, 200 years is that we've self-imposed how we live and where we live. Yeah. What do you feel in your thought processes? What impact does anti-Semitism have on others? On, say, for example, what impact does anti-Semitism have on non-Jews? Well, I think that anti-Semitism, unbeknownst, I don't think that in today's society there's more and more young people that if they are anti-Semitic, it's because they were born into anti-Semitism. I see. So if you meet someone who's anti-Semitic, 90% of the time, he or she comes from a family that was anti-Semitic, and they just heard it. And so they it, it's a learned process and, and sort of part of natural evolution because they, they live around it. And I think the same thing happens with, uh, with the African-American community. We live in a house where all they hear is bad words about um, African-Americans, and so they grow up with the same same thing. And I think you'll find that in more, to be truthful, well, I think you find it in all, in all areas of, of, of people, but mainly I think you'll find it in lower middle class and and down, whereas in, in, in upper middle class and, and upper class people, the discrimination is a little bit different because of, let's say, for financial reasons, it's, it's a different type of, it's a different type of discrimination. And uh, it, it usually lends itself totally different um, in different ways to right. see how it goes. But discrimination is definitely, you know, an anti-Semitism it, it is in all areas of people, uh, non-Jewish, you know, I mean, it, it, there's no saying, you know, it, it's only a specific person, but it does happen in, in all uh, socioeconomic areas of, of non-Jews, although I think it's not nearly as overstated as as a lot of people think it is i think i don't think it's it's on the upswing but it's not it's still not i don't think you know where it's gotten to be a really outrageous except in maybe some larger communities i see you had mentioned you had touched briefly a little bit on the world war ii era and mm-hmm. as we look back we know for a fact that filled with hate adolf hitler clearly scapegoated the jews in germany and throughout europe Can you share with our listeners what the meaning of scapegoat or scapegoating is and what do people gain from scapegoating others? Yeah. Well, I, I think that's the definition of, of scapegoating is where, in this case, Hitler was trying to become the most powerful person of, of Germany. And as he was becoming popular, it was also, they were coming out of depression just as we were in, in, in that era. Uh, financially, the country was tough. And uh, he needed, he, he blamed it on the Jews. That it was the reason why we are in this predicament is because the Jews own this 
this and the Jews own that and the Jews own this and it's their fault that we're in this predicament. So when you, you do that, you're taking the blame off the, the, the he was taking the blame off the, the, the government and off of anyone in particular, just specifically putting it on one person. We're, we're going through the scapegoating process of this country right now by scapegoating and, and blaming a lot of things on immigrants that are coming through this country. And, and we have a, a group of population in our country that thinks that, uh, you know, number one, the COVID came from the Chinese and Asians and all of the drugs come from everyone coming across the border. And so we, we use that as a, as a way to blame others for, for things that are happening in our country that we can't necessarily totally explain or we have lack of control of. And so we scapegoat and we find someone to be that scapegoat. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and that's the, you know, that's the easiest way to do it and, and, and not feel guilty. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely true. And you touched on this in your answer, but what do you think the effect the effect of hateful images and hateful speech on the people who hear it is. What do you think the impact and effect is? Well, I definitely know. I mean, there's definitely an impact on it. In, in our country, you know, the last four years, we went through a lot of this where the leaders of our country, a lot of the leaders of our country were, were blaming other people for things that were happening. And and now we're seeing the, the problem with that really out in the open. And I don't think a lot of people technically understand what happened here. So we've blamed, we've limited the amount of immigrants. We, we stop them from coming in our country. Many of those people came to our country in, we'll use the hospitality industry mm-hmm. as number as number one. Those people have come to our country and always worked jobs in the hospitality industry because they worked those jobs because no one else wanted them. No one wanted it. No one wants to stand, you know, back in 20 years ago, there wasn't as many dishwashers. So people washed dishes by hand in restaurants. No one wanted to stand over those sinks with hot water and plow your hands in there in the dirty dishes and scrub them clean and dip them in, in uh, sanitizer and, and, and get them clean or even stand in front of a hot dishwasher all day and do that. Well, some of these people that came here were happy to do that because it was a regular job that they didn't have in their country. Mm-hmm. And they came here and they it was a way to make themselves better. And, and we have that now because a lot of the children from those families have grown up and those are the DACA students, the students that got, they came here, they didn't know they were coming. It wasn't there. They didn't cross, you know, they, they were carried across the border at, at, at one and two years old and lived in this country they didn't know they were here illegally sure. and now they're having you know they want to stay here they they got the education so I, I you know I think in as Jews we don't have that quite as much that type of action because we've been in this country a long time there's not a lot of Jews coming in as immigrants in that fashion so we don't have as much of that as, as some of the other people but there's definitely the scapegoating and uh, and the hate has definitely changed how we how we live in our country Sure, I agree 100%. I've always said that if you ever enjoyed a glass of orange juice in the morning, you should thank a migrant worker because uh, Uh, (laughs) they're the ones who do the hard work. I wanted to ask, do you think that hateful images and hateful words, they reflect existing attitudes or does it help to create them? 
Well, I think that uh, there's a there's a lot of cartoons that depict uh, you know um, over the years that have depicted Jews as money hungry. But the truth of the matter is, I don't know how that got started again. You know, back in the old day, you know, someone. But the the truth is that the number of Jews in banking is extremely low. You know, in control of of our money. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look back at some of the even the Secretary of Treasury and, and government people that had had power in, in some of these areas of banking and finance, you'll see that it really, it wasn't, the Jews didn't really have that much power. We were active in, in those communities, but we didn't, we weren't top, you know, we weren't top of the line. I, I know someone that worked for a bank in Cleveland, uh, a very large bank, and he goes, you know, I, I don't get this. He said, I don't think in the executive part of the bank, I don't think there's one Jew. <laughs> He says, and even as we go down a little bit, the first Jews I really see are in the law, are lawyers for the bank. So, you know, that's how that, and I think that that, some of that came from the days of, I don't know, gangsters and, you know, Al Capone and some of those people, and they always seemed to have a a Jewish accountant. So, so we were professional people, Mm -hmm. but we really didn't have, you know, so we were the closest thing to, to, to that. So you'll see tons of cartoons about Jews and money. And obviously they're they're terribly incorrect. But they're also very hurtful. And um, even if they are, to some people would be, oh, it's really funny, you know. But it's not funny when it's when you're the person that's being depicted. Sure, And sure. so, um, you know, that kind of stuff is just not, it, it, it just doesn't have a place in our society to, to use uh, that type of uh, action. Yeah. Uh, even though we don't, because it's, you know, it's very rarely true. Yeah. I know this question might be highly personal, but I wanted to ask if with your definition and your understanding of anti-Semitism, what would be an example or two that you've witnessed? And I know you mentioned about cartoons in the past, but what would be an example of anti-Semitism that you've witnessed or that you've experienced? You know, I've had two major events in my life, both in, in in my adult life. Not so much when I was younger. I guess I just didn't, I didn't really pay much attention. Most of my friends were Jewish. I hung out at the, the, the Jewish center. Uh, I went to temple, to the Sunday school. So most of my, the majority of my friends were Jewish. And so I didn't, I never really paid much attention. But the first, my first experience was in the, the mid, in the seventies. And I was working for my dad. My dad had a, a truck stop and we were about to build a new building and um, we had a meeting with the architect and the couple guys from the uh, restaurant supply supply people that we're gonna we were buying the equipment from who one happened to be Irish and the other one happened to be Italian and me and my dad and we go up to this to his office uh, and we're looking over the blueprints and we're all making you know suggestions and some changes and as we get ready to leave the guy says to my dad he goes you know you're the whitest Jew I've ever met wow and, and at, at first it doesn't sound it doesn't sound real bad but what he what he was basically doing is he was putting Jews in the same category as blacks mm-hmm. and so we were we were on the white side instead of the other side so we walked out I didn't really you know it just didn't it was kind of my first time so I, I was shocked but I wasn't I, I guess I just didn't totally get it yeah. and we walked out and the other two guys looked at my dad and they said 
how could you allow that to be said? And my dad said, well, you know, you have to look at the, you have to look at the person who said it. And what was it going to do if I said F you, or yeah. if I had a fight with the guy over it and retaliated, what good was it going to do? I'd lose, I'd lose the architect. We did, we'd put a six months behind and starting over. And, um, you know, I, I consider the source yeah. and, and you know, it was wrong. I know it was wrong. My son just learned a lesson and we're all pretty much in agreement. You as an Italian has figured it out. You as an Irishman has had it. Now you see what a Jew goes through. Yeah. And we kind of laughed it off and went on. So that was my first major time. And then a couple of years ago, I was in, in Montrose at the Wendy's out there. And uh, I was uh, taking a class at, the, at our temple. And I went to, to into the Wendy's to, to study a little bit before class. And um, I had my keep, uh, you know, my yarmulke skull cap on. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there very quietly, and this family is just, these little kids are just running around, and, and it, it's really disturbing. And it, you know, I was like, okay, you don't behave like that outside. And I looked at the children, and I said, you know, you should really go sit down. You could get hurt. Someone could spill something on you. Yeah. And I wasn't I wasn't trying to be mean to the kids. I was just, you know, I didn't want someone to get hurt, or, or they're running around, and an older person stands up, and they, they, you know, they bump them, and they fall over. And the man stands up, and he goes, that's the trouble with you Jews. Mm-hmm. Wow, yeah. And I was like in total shock. And then, you know, my first thing was to, to say something back to him, you know. Sure. And I looked and I thought, and first of all, and, and, and me and my, my humor, I was like, well, wait a minute, how did he know I was Jewish? And, you know, I forgot a bit. I had my, my cap, my, mm-hmm. my, my, you know, yamata on my head. Yeah. And, and so that's how he knew. And I packed up my stuff and I, and I left. I, di- I didn't want to be involved. Yeah. Well, two days later, I went back to that Wendy's and I ordered ordered my food and went to sit down and the manager comes running out and he goes, oh my God, you're the man from the other night. I said, oh, here we go. You know, and he goes, no, I want to apologize. I don't want you to ever think that Wendy's, you know, that's our, that's our policy. That was terrible. And he says, after you left, I went over and told the man he had to leave. I see. And, and do you know that every time I go in that place and the manager, the same manager's there, he buys me my lunch. Oh. Oh, that's, that's nice. <laughs> it's like he feels bad. Yeah. And I thought, you don't need to do that. No, you know, no, I, yeah. I'm okay. But so, no. you know, I've had it and I've had it a few times. You know, nothing, nothing like, you know, in the past or some people have had. But, um, and, you know, we're very fortunate here in Akron. We haven't had any, uh, although a couple weeks ago there were some, there was a break in at the Akron Jewish Center and some slurs were put on the wall and on the sidewalks outside. And um, so that's our first taste of it here in Akron but um, you know it's, it's spreading all over We're, fortunately as a smaller community I don't think we see it as much the bigger the community the more you see it yeah you had mentioned the larger the city the larger the, yeah the yeah I mean you go to New York you're gonna see you see you know way more of it sure. um, or even in Chicago and LA you'll see those things and maybe and even and I would probably say down south more than more than as we go in the, to the north and again, I, can you? How do you define it? I don't know. Can you blame it on a specific socioeconomic group? I, you know, I hate to do that yeah. because I know people from all all groups, and and I've met people, and and so I don't want to do that either. It's hard to define where it comes from. Um, no, I, you know, I guess I the, the most is I have to say it comes from uneducated people. Sure, sure. Know? Ignorant people do ignorant things, and right. 
How do you think anti-Semitism has changed throughout history? Well, I think I, I think it's become more refined. If that could be, if I could say it, that you know, you know, when I say more refined, I think that the if you look back in you know five hundred years ago, or four, even maybe two hundred years ago, people were much more violent, and and it wasn't a matter of words back then. And as we've become more electronically controlled. And we're all electronically controlled, whether we want to admit it or not. We have our computers, we have our TV with, uh, you know, where we, 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 we have either cable or, or, or whatever. And then we, you know, we watch Netflix and Amazon and all these things. So we have a lot of electronic control in our life. So. I think as we become more electronically controlled and we, we rely on, on especially the news services, I think our, our anti-Semitism is refined in a different way and we're learning about it. And I don't, you know, there are the cases of the, the couple of years ago in Charlotte where, you know, someone, they were protesting and the guys came out with tiki, tiki, you know, things held like, the, you know, flames like the mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Klux Klan used to do and then yeah. someone drove through the crowd. Sure. And, and they'll always do that kind of stuff. But I think it's a more refined anti-Semitism in today's world than, it, than it's been in the past. And because it's more it's more available. I mean, um, you know, it, we could just as easily be, instead of talking about this, we could just as easily be talking about, hate. oh, you should hate the Jews, or you should hate the blacks, or, you know, we could be just as easily on, on here talking like that sure. and worse to talking the other way. Sure. And, yeah. and so as easy as it is for us to have conversation it's just as easy for people with hate to have conversation also and we have to remember that and uh years ago i was listening to a uh, a well-known radio person in my car and um i was a salesman and someone got in my car and we're driving and he goes i can't believe you're listening to this guy and i said well what do you mean and he goes he's he's you know racist he's this and he's that and i said absolutely you're right he is and they said well, why do you listen and I said, well, you can't win a fight if you don't know what the enemy's doing. That's exactly true. No, that, that's 100% true. You know, you have to know what the enemy is saying, what the enemy is doing in order to be yeah. prepared. You know, I, I agree 100% and wholeheartedly. I mean, you hit the... And so, I mean, that's why we have spies in wars, <laughs> so yeah. that we know what the other guy's doing. Yeah, yeah. Know? No, absolutely. It's, it's essential. It's part of the strategy. Yeah. Why would political or religious leaders espouse anti-Semitic ideas. Well, again, it's like being the scapegoat. Mm-hmm. The anti-Semitism lead, leads to the scapegoating. And and so uh, uh, a politician, depending on where he lives, and, you know, he might find it easy to... I'm going to use something else here that's probably, you know, shake some people up, but we, we're just going through a terrible time in our country over abortion. Mm-hmm. And I don't look at it as we're going through a, 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 about abortion. I look at it as a woman's choice. But there are a lot of people that would would want to make it sound like it like in the Jewish faith and in and many of our Jewish leaders are out there on the side of the woman uh, and, and wanting women's rights and it, it's because of things that we, we've studied and things that how we feel about humans and so a politician that's against 
once it says we shouldn't have abortion, might use some of that as that rhetoric to make himself bigger and better in front of his fans. So that would be a reason for, you you know, not, you know, and then he'd say, oh, I'm not anti-Semitic. It's just that they believe this. And he's not using it. In, you know, he thinks it's not anti-Semitic, but it is anti-Semitic because it's it's geared towards the Jew. And so that that happens out there in, in, in many communities. And it starts in the small community and works its way up because the, the guy that uses it, let's face it, guys, a lot of people start local and then they work their way up to, to larger area things in the in the state and become state officials and then they go on to become federal elected people so it starts small and they don't even realize sometimes that it's become an issue until it's too late to look called out on it yeah and, yeah. and then all of a sudden oh my god no i didn't do that i love the jews i love the you know i, I go visit them every time i'm up for election you know but yeah. and, and then he then he turns around and says something bad so yeah I, you know um it, it, it's just one of those things you know it's just like it happens in in every minority you know yeah political expediency i would imagine let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk about your very important work in the area of social justice with the akron with the akron interfaith social justice group and can you share with our listeners the mission of the group and what excites you about your very timely and very important work that you're doing with your participation in this organization well um, a couple years ago I, I was in Cleveland and I heard some other temples talk about what they were doing up in Cleveland there, there is actually a, another social the greater Cleveland something I, I, I apologize to them for not knowing the exact name but anyway I happen to be extremely to me interfaith dialogue and interaction is the number one answer to me to our to issues in our in our community so there are going to be times when whether you're you're Catholic or Methodist or Episcopalian or Jewish or Muslim, you're going to have something that you're against. But and it might be one or two groups that are against something. But I think if we don't sit down together and talk about it and come to a, an agreement and an answer that we'll never have any kind of peace. There was a Buffalo Springfield song many years ago that said, in, in singing, I think it came out around the time of Kent State, the shooting in Kent State, somewhere in that era. And um, unfortunately, I'm from that era, so I remember it. But uh, it said, if everybody's wrong, then nobody's right. I see. So, if, if I'm criticizing you and you're criticizing me, well, neither of us are right. Sure. Because there's no way. So we have to come to some, we have to sit down and learn about other people in order to be right. Because that's just the way, that's the way it is. I, I came up with this really cool triangular thing. And I, I say that interfaith efforts are designed to develop greater peace and tranquility. So that's it. And then from that, you create friendships that result in interfaith experience. And from that, you create leaders. Then you create the communities that are enriched with all this interfaith dialogue. And you suddenly realize you have peace and tranquility. So it's super, super important for us to, to believe in that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I, I think the more a person learns about another person, the more difficult it is to call that person your enemy. You know? Yes. Yes. Yeah. 
I mean, if, uh, you know, the old joke about, well, if, if there was, we could stop the war if we had all the soldiers wearing their pajamas to the war, you know, yeah. everyone would be busy laughing at each other and what they look like in their pajamas and no one would have time for war. So that's just one of those crazy things. No, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. You know, as we continue to move through our conversation, our research department in preparation for this specific show, we came across an amazing survey that just bowled us over when we saw it. Almost two-thirds of young American adults do not know that six million Jews were killed during the Holocaust. And the survey went on to say, and more than one in ten believe Jews caused the Holocaust. That's what the 2020 survey found, revealing shocking levels of ignorance about the greatest crime of the 20th century. And according to the study of millennial and Gen Z adults aged between 18 and 39, almost half, that's 48%, could not name a single concentration camp or ghetto established during the Second World War. Almost a quarter of respondents, 23%, said they believed that the Holocaust was a myth or had been exaggerated or they weren't sure. Now, one in eight, that would come out to 12%, said they had definitely not heard or didn't think that they had heard about the Holocaust. More than half, 56% of the respondents, said that they had seen Nazi symbols on their social media platforms and or in their communities. And almost half, 49%, had seen Holocaust denial or distortion posts on social media or elsewhere online. And in such an environment, it probably isn't surprising that Americans' knowledge of another part of their nation's history is sorely lacking as well. Many people have no idea of the historic ties in the movement for social justice in America between blacks and Jews. Now, I know that many people today may not know these facts because far too many people are or happen to be allergic to the truth, I would say, or their attention span is only what they can read on Twitter, which is 159 characters. And it certainly seems like far too many people do not take the requisite time to read extensively and to know their history, and some they may simply not care to know the facts because it may not fit a specific or desired narrative that they choose to pursue. And for many, the truth is just a hard concept to accept. Alan, my question to you would be, do you think if more Jews and African Americans knew the facts regarding the contributions that Jews have made in the struggle historically for civil rights for all persons of color, side by side and walking hand in hand, since the inception of the NAACP, that some of the tensions that exist between the two groups could be or would be diminished or lessened. You know, I think that you're right. I, you know, those statistics that you read, you know, I've heard them many times. They're, they're staggering. How, how do we, you know, whose fault is it that our children don't know that so many children do not know anything about World War II or the history of it? And, and to be truthful, I, I, I don't find it that difficult because recent over the last 10 or so years that I've been, you know, I, I was reti I've been retired, I, I fortunately retired at 55 years old and I'm 70 years old now, you know, suddenly I, I've, I've learned that I can study and, and um, 
which I didn't, I just didn't do enough of in high school. But when I studied in high school, what I realized is that I didn't learn half this, these things. I didn't learn enough about some of the great American Indians that helped develop our country. I didn't learn about the great black people that developed our country. I didn't learn about World War II enough in my schooling. Now, is that my fault? Maybe some, because I didn't pay attention, but also because World War II was one chapter in the book, you know, and how do you give World War II one chapter? And about five or six years ago, I read this really great biography that was written about Roosevelt and Winston Churchill and their relationship. And oh my God, I learned so much about World War II from the American side about what Roosevelt just didn't want to accept and and what Churchill already knew. And then, you know, we know how it ends up, you know, and, and in Roosevelt's presence, there were three really important Jewish members of his cabinet, and they really tried to get him to see what was happening, and he just didn't want to accept it. And I just downloaded a book today about Truman's 82 days as vice president before he became president. And, and do you know in his 82 days before he became president, he only saw Roosevelt twice. Wow. So, yeah, and so we, you know, we joke about the uh, vice presidents and their lack of we never see him and you know we we heard about our current vice president how power how much she was going to do and everything but to be truthful with you i haven't seen her at all yeah. she, she's just like all the other vice president except that she's a woman and, and she's not really there much and, and roosevelt said if you want a best friend in, in washington get a dog <laughs> yeah no, so absolutely. you know but so i'm not surprised that we don't know anything of you know our kids don't know and and or they have misguided things about, you know, oh, well, the Jews started world. We, we didn't. But that's the scapegoating that we talked about. Sure. The scapegoating did such a good job that here we are 70 years later, 65 years later, and we're still thinking it was the Jews. It was the Jews fault because the scapegoating just indoctrinated so many people and so many things along the way that we've that we just it, it becomes na it's, it's natural. So we have to change that thinking by creating better education. Yeah, and and none of us are too old to learn. No, absolutely. You know, absolutely. Um, we, we could all, and, and I will tell you that that was one of the greatest parts of the pandemic for me is that I have used the pandemic every Wednesday I'm on a I go on a call I was just on before I, I met with you I was on a, on, a, on a Zoom meeting from the Holocaust Museum in Cincinnati, Ohio in connection with two or three other Holocaust museums in communities and it's Holocaust survivors speaking about the Holocaust and it's fascinating I it's bet. fascinating sure. to learn about these different you know some of them are not even how they're the children of Holocaust survivors because there's not not that many Holocaust survivors left anymore. So it's hard to learn. The ones that are there are, are incredible. To hear these 90-year-old people talking, they're finally talking about it. They, yeah. It's taken them this long to get it out of their system, wow. to talk publicly about it. So we need to learn. We need to learn from them. And, and so... I, you know, I find it fascinating. And and various events like that, to me, the greatest invention of our time, we can say, you know, Facebook or Twitter or blah, blah, blah. I think the greatest invention of our time is Zoom, you know, yeah, um, because we can we can be on Zoom and, and, and be educated by and, and learn from different people and join in meetings to ask questions. So there's a lot. We have a lot to do. It's true. You know, we have a lot to do out there. You know, this isn't going to go away just because I said I don't like it anymore. You know, no. 
you you can go anywhere in the world like reading a book you know with education yep. i mean and part of the educational component of our podcast i think it's important to note for the record that jews did in fact play an impacting and evolving role in the foundation in the early development of the NAACP the National Association Absolutely. for the Advancement of Colored People for example on February 12th 1909 it was a diverse group of people who were white black and Jews who founded the NAACP a gentleman yep. by a gentleman by the name of Henry Moskowitz who was born in 1879 and lived until 1936 he was a Romanian Jewish emigree and a social worker as well as a civil rights activist and leader who later served as president of the NYC's Municipal Civil Service Commission and was the commissioner of public markets and became the executive director of the Broadway League. He was a founding member of the NAACP. Also, I think it's important and indicative to note of the early Jewish support in the NAACP was Lillian Wald, Rabbi Emil G. Hirsch and Rabbi Stephen S. Weiss, each of whom were also founders. Also, the Spingarn brothers served as officers, and Jacob Schiff, Julius Rosenwald, and Herbert Lehman contributed funds to the organization. And another example, which I think is important, is that on June 21st of 1964, three civil rights workers, Michael Schwerner, James Cheney, and Andrew Goodman, were killed by a a mob of Klansmen in Neshoba County, Mississippi. Mickey Schwerner, as a matter of fact, Mickey Schwerner was a Jewish young man. So from that to this, Alan, I'd like if you would share with our listeners the background and the story about the Reformed Action Group, the parent group of all Reformed Jews, and how it partnered directly with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the early 60s. Yeah, well, the Reformed Judaism, and I might, you know, just a, a little background on what wrote so there's there's three kinds of Judaism or three three major groups. There's the Orthodox, which is what most of us know as the the, the gentleman that you see with the girls on their uh, sideburns and, and and maybe wearing a hat, and, and they are they walk to, to the temple on Saturday morning. They live in smaller communities, and then there's the the middle of the road, the conservatives, which do a little bit of both, but they really want to be more liberal, and and the Reform Jews. Are, are the more the more liberal Jews? The Reform Jewish community is about twice the size of the other two communities together. There are more Reform Jews. Reform Judaism was formed by German Jews that wanted to assimilate to the United States, but wanted to be more. They wanted to be more Christian. I guess they, you know they didn't want to go to they didn't want to go to church on, uh, on you know synagogue on Friday night. They wanted to go on Sunday like everyone else. They didn't want to close their business on Saturday the Sabbath. They wanted to be like everyone else. So they, it's it sort of the German Jews kind of developed this this area, and now it's it is the most popular because it's the most liberal. Most of our congregations speak more English than we do Hebrew. A lot of most Reform congregations wearing a, a skull cap or, or a prayer shawl is, is totally optional, and we allow men and women to sit together. You know, all kinds of things. So, so this this is the way that our country has gone as far as to choose, and so we have a group called the. The, the RAC, which is the Religious Action Center, and that's part of being the Reformed Jews uh, started this. And back in the early 60s, when, when things were really rolling, and we were trying to get, you know, voting rights,
rights and, and, and getting blacks in schools and all those things. A couple Jewish guys from Philadelphia went to Washington and said, well, we don't have an office. You, you need to have a, an office down here. So they bought this old embassy building that was huge. It's, it's at the end of Embassy Row, what we call Embassy Row now. It's a huge complex. It's still there. And they bought this big building. They called Martin Luther King because they said, the NAACP doesn't have an office here in Washington. How could that be? You know, it, it, this is the, the most important place to be and you don't have an office. We want to give you an office here. So they, they gave them an office in, in, in the building. I see. In return, in return, the rack as a permanent seat on the NAACP board, the National NAACP board. So we're involved forever. Wow. We're, we're connected. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, the voting rights bill was written in that building. I see. And taken wow. to, uh, taken to, to the Congress to vote on. So it was mostly Jews and, and blacks together writing this with, with you know, with every, I'm sure there, there was more than just uh, us. I'm sure there were, were Christians of many of many faiths there. And, and so there's always been this history. And if you look back at, at many of the pictures of, of the marches, um, whether it be Selma or Montgomery or, or wherever, in some of those marches, you'll actually see a rabbi carrying a Torah, mm-hmm. you know, the first five books of the Bible in, in a scroll form. They're actually carrying it to show these rights are inherent to all of us, not just white people. It doesn't say that. And of course, in recent history, we've realized now that 18% of Jews in this country are black, which we never we never talked about that before, mm-hmm. but 18% are, I shouldn't say black, are of color. Okay. That's a huge amount. So we have we have to start recognizing that. One of the biggest congregations in New York City was founded in the in Harlem. I so see. we have a huge connection. And I think that I'm going to blame it on the Jews. That's our fault. We have not stayed as connected as we should. After the 60s and after the 70s and Vietnam War, I think the Jews have become very lackadaisical. And I think that they let the relationship split a little bit. And I think you're seeing more and more of that now. I know here in Akron, we have a great relationship. And I think in our social justice group is probably 50-50 uh, black churches and, and uh, white congregations. And a couple of our co-founders of, of the organization happen to be Jewish. So I think we're, we're definitely in tune that we need to be more involved because in many cases, we are a people of a little bit more... Am I a white, am I white privileged? Absolutely. So how do I use that white privilege to help someone else? And we have to use that not in the, to buy a better house or a better car, but we need to do that to help everyone buy a better house and a better what you know, better life. Yeah, yeah. And so we need to be better humanitarians. So I think that not so much in the black community. I think it's difficult sometimes though. We want to be more to the black community, and I think sometimes because we've walked away a little bit, they're a little hesitant to accept some of us as helpers. So it, it, it'll work a little bit in both directions, and, and but I think I think in the long run, we'll, we'll, we'll get through it. Yeah, absolutely. And in keeping with
with that concept of peace and sacrifice, we, we know that peace does involve sacrifice. For example, the giving up of something in order to get a larger or greater and more enduring thing. And many people talk about peace, but few people do the necessary work to bring about a lasting and enduring peace. We know that peace involves sacrifice. And with every good, there can be an opposite bad or yin and yang. Now, as you mentioned in our pre-interview conversation, which was filled with golden boulders of wisdom, I've, <laughs> I've always told I've always told our production crew that our pre-interview conversations are filled with just as much quality content as our scheduled interviews, and that we should record those as well. But you had spoke about how every faith has a golden rule or a foundational tenet of peace. For example, in Christianity, it is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, in Judaism, it is what is hateful to you, do not to your fellow man. This is the entire law. All the rest is commentary. That's very similar, yes. From the Talmud. So the question I have would be, Alan, what does the word shalom mean? So I I, I sign off on on 90% of my my emails with the word shalom. So, well, you know, in, in Hebrew, the real meaning means peace. But I think more so it's become it's become a greeting. So when I see you, I say shalom, as in hello. But when we leave our meeting, I might say shalom also. So that's one of the crazy things about Hebrew and, and Hebrew words. Many of them take on a different, can take on the context of what you mean and not actually what it means. So we use that word a lot because it might be when, when you're going somewhere and you say, and you, and you leave and you say shalom to the person, what you're basically saying to them is, I'm going in peace. I see. So, so you're, you're relating that, but we, we've shortened it to just say shalom. And it's very funny. Obviously, I, I, I walk around the city of Akron with my yarmulke on, and it's funny because sometimes I go somewhere and I have no idea. You know, I forget I'm wearing it. it it's become such a part of my life, which I did not grow up with. I, I started wearing the yarmulke later on in life for my own personal reasons. And I, uh, you know, I'll walk in someplace and I'll be walking and someone will, someone will look at me and say, Shalom. And, and I can't tell you how many times I look at that and go, I look at him and go, how do they know I'm Jewish? <laughs> <laughs> and it takes me a second to realize. And, I, and, I, and then I, and I naturally just look back at him and go, Shalom. Yeah. You know, where I could just as easily say, hi, how are you today? Yeah. But it's just, I, I just say it because it just it, it just rolls off my tongue, sure, you know, very sure. naturally. No, it's natural. It's a natural response. Yeah. And I understand exactly what you mean about a word having uh, meaning to say hello and goodbye. In Italian, you can say ciao, and that could either be to say hello to exactly. someone or it could be to say goodbye to them as they depart. Yeah. Knowing, Alan, that we've covered a great deal of ground and actually only scratched the surface of what is a very complex phenomenon with many causes, effects, and moving parts. We're going to have to ask you back at some time in the future to explore these issues and much, much more, you know. Sure. With all the work... And I'd be delighted. Oh, thank you so much, Alan. That's that's That touches our heart. And we've been honored to have you here. 
Now, with so much work that needs to still be done, how does one effectively go about combating the hatred that is anti-Semitism? Well, I think I do that every day when I, you know, we've talked about being involved in interfaith work. And being involved in interfaith work, I think, is the key to answering answering this. So our temple here in Akron has an event well, we have sort of slowed down, but we started an event years years ago with the, the mosque here in, in town. Okay. And so everyone goes, Jews have an event with the mosque? <laughs> yes. It's one of the best events of the times we do. We started a, a thing. There was a book called The Children of Abraham, Jews and Muslims in Conversation. And it was it was uh, put together with the Islamic Association of, of the United States and the Union of Reform in the book, and it explores the fact that they start there where where both religions come from. Children of Abraham, the two children of Abraham, mm-hmm. and we used it for the first year. We took a chapter of the book every time and went through the book, and we had this great. It, it was fabulous. The only time that we actually stayed on a chapter for two months was the, when we talked about Palestine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure I, I understand that. <laughs> a, difficult, a difficult subject for both sure you know sure you know and and, and and to be truthful it was a very peaceful conversation and it was a wonderful conversation because we broke the ice we got it out we got it out we talked about it with each other and and all of a sudden that wasn't the the number one conversation so the second year we went and started talking about life cycle events marriages engagements funerals births of children uh, naming of children all these different birth family events that happened in our lives and we realized how close we were as far as our traditions mm-hmm. and so now we, we, we've taken on some other conversations and, and of course the, the whole group kind of slowed down a little bit because we were on Zoom during the pandemic and, and hopefully real soon here we'll get back to, to meeting together and we can give each other a hug and one of the great things about it is when I go of course I see all my Jewish friends from Temple but when I go I don't want to sit with them I want to sit with the people from the mosque sure yeah and, and learn about them. And so we're all pretty much the same. We all want to sit with each other. So it, it comes out that half the table might be Muslim, half might be Jewish. And, and, and when it's at temple, we usually have a few more people there than they do. When it's at the mosque, we, they usually have a few more people than we do. But and then we have snacks, traditional food snacks, which are really nice. nice. And uh, and we just we just enjoy each other's company. But that is the kind of thing. And, and Temple Israel also has, we do, it's started St. Hillary's and Faith Lutheran Church had a dialogue during Lent about social justice, and they invited us to be part of it, and then we invited New Hope Baptist, which is a primarily Southern Black Baptist church, to be part of it also. So the four of us together have this have this say for four weeks during, usually during March, during Lent, and we, we pick a, a social, uh, we have a you know, social justice topic. I think those are the way we become a, a greater unit to together adverse to being apart is by being together not only socially but mentally and physically.
physically. Yeah. When we get together, and you know what? We can be a pretty powerful unit when you think about the four congregations together. And if we call and ask a politician to come speak to us, that's a pretty sincere group of people. I mean, uh, St. Hillary's is much bigger than the temple, but we've got eight, nine hundred members, you know, including children. But, you know, we've got, I think, 400 families sure. in our congregation. And Faith Lutheran is big, and, 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 and the Baptist Church is big. So we, that in turn, says something when we're in the community. Yeah. We're not we're not speaking as Jews, we're not speaking as Methodists, we're not speaking as Lutherans. We're speaking as people of the community, and that's the important part. Yeah, that it? is it. That is the important part. We have to speak as, as members of the community. I agree. So. We are stronger and better when we work together, and yep. as we get ready to round third base and head for home with our very insightful conversation, and we're very grateful to you for your time and your expertise, we want you to take us out with any thoughts that you have on your heart and mind about sharing what's important about what we've talked about. And I wanted to ask you uh, for my final question. Are you hopeful, optimistic, or otherwise for the world that your grandchild is growing up in that we will see a meaningful reduction in, if not the eradication of, expressions of anti-Semitism in his lifetime? Alan, I want to tell you how grateful we are to you. You always have a home here with Light Em Up on our podcast you can come back anytime that your heart desires and we always want to leave the last word with our guests so close it out for us well i will say that um i i like to be a positive person so i i'm going to say i'm hopeful will it be easy no i think we've got a lot of work i think sometimes we take two steps forward and one step backwards and i think that's where we are right now we've taken a step backwards a little bit and we need to to re-engage and we need to think and pray that we can we can move forward but I, I you know like I said I, I I try to be a positive person listen there's plenty plenty to be negative about but it's much harder to be a positive person sometimes so I, I like to think I'm a hard worker so I'm gonna say on the positive side and that my grandson is going to grow up in a in a very positive in a very peaceful world much more peaceful than we we've had I can only hope sure absolutely this is our collective hope Alan thanks and, and I just want to say thank you again for for inviting me and, and you know feel free to give me a call anytime I'll be happy to, to, to join in with you that's very kind of you the honor and the privilege it really was all ours the honor and the privilege to talk to you to spend some time with you I have missed you and I'm happy we had the chance to talk and catch up and I look forward to talking to you again soon hey I want to thank my friends at Innisfree for their promotional products and underwriting their fresh squeezed hydrating green tea loaded with amino acids and antioxidants help replenish and neutralize skin for that natural glow. Want to know the best part? Their tea is organically grown and chosen for skincare from 3,301 Korean native green tea varieties. The winning 1-2-3 punch combination consists of the youth enhancing serum with black tea. Then you just dap, 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 a little bit of the eye serum underneath your eyes. And finally, the enhancing cream. Oh my goodness. Like Muhammad Ali used to say, I'm pretty, I'm still pretty. They offer innovative beauty solutions for men, also powered by the finest natural ingredients responsibly sourced from Korea's pristine Jeju Island. Their proprietary extraction methods preserve the purity and potency of these wholesome ingredients from plant to bottle to your skin, offering advanced formulas that safely address all skin concerns without the use of harmful chemicals.
chemicals and preservatives. With the wonders of nature at the heart of Innisfree, they take care to preserve and protect the environment in all that they do. We want to thank our friends at Innisfree for their promotional products and underwriting of Light 'em Up. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to us on YouTube and Instagram at Rizzo's Protective Group. We're very excited about being ranked 10th out of the top 35 criminal justice podcasts as ranked and listed by Feedspot. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to Feedspot at www.feedspot.com. And please, por favor, per favore, visit our friends at HTTPS colon slash slash newsly dot me. Newsly is an audio app for iOS and Android. It picks up web articles about the most trending topics on the web at any given moment and reads them to you in a natural human voice. For the first time in the history of the internet, the entire web becomes listenable. You can browse articles from topics you choose and start playing. Hey, stop scrolling, start listening. You can follow any topic as specific as you like from sports, science, to Bitcoin. It'll find you the latest articles and read them to you. Hey, it's as easy as that. And to top it off, they have podcasts as well. Explore trending podcasts from over 50 countries. Our podcast, Light 'em Up, is there too. I started using it as my default podcast app, and you can too. Download and use Newsly for free now from www.newsly.me or from the link in the podcast description liner notes and use the promo code Light 'em Up. And Light 'em Up in this case is spelled L, the number one. G-H-T-E-M-U-P. All one word. That's L, the number one. G-H-T-E-M-U-P. All one word.